0: Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with John Rigi, National Advisor for Cybersecurity and Risk with the American Hospital Association. I'm Anthony Guerra, founder and editor-in-chief. John, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks. Uh, great to be here, Anthony.
0: All right, John. Looking forward to a nice chat. Why don't you start off by telling me a little bit about your organization and your role?
1: Sure. The American Hospital Association is the primary advocacy organization for the nation's hospitals and health systems. We represent over 5,000 hospitals and health systems of all types and sizes, from very small rural hospitals all the way up to multi-state systems. And we've been uh, in business since 1898, 125 years which is actually longer than my previous three-letter organization, the <laughs> FBI.
0: Yes, very good. Very good. So you like to work for places that have been around a while. That's right. Right.
1: In good. organizations where I can remember the name easily, three initials. That's about it. Love
0: it. Love it. So interesting. Um, your title uh, has risk in it. Uh, I interview a lot of CISOs and one told me recently, it's all about risk. If you're focusing on vulnerabilities, you're going down the wrong, wrong path. You have a risk in your title. I don't know if, if you had, I don't know if this, if anybody had this position before you, or if you're the first one to hold this position, if you had some input into deciding what it would be called, but it's just interesting that you have the word risk in there.
1: Very astute observation, Anthony. Um, there was a very specific reason why I included that uh, word in the title. First of all, cybersecurity is in fact primarily a enterprise risk issue. It is not just an IT issue. It is a risk issue which impacts every function in the organization and for hospitals, most importantly, it is a risk that impacts patient care and patient safety. Also, based upon my background, uh, fortunately and unfortunately I have lots of experience dealing with other types of risk as well, physical risk to hospitals and unfortunately we're seeing a big uptick in uh, hospital violence, counterintelligence issues, and other, again, types of risk that hospitals are facing. So we wanted to make it all encompassing, cybersecurity being the priority issue that I address. And then that basically in my role is act as the national advocate and advisor for hospitals, that trusted advisor for the C-suite, but understanding there are other risk issues that hospitals face beyond cybersecurity.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, you talk about it as an enterprise risk issue, and it seems obvious to those, you know, anytime, if you take a, a quick look at it, it seems obvious. Um, some folks that I've spoken to, some CISOs, um, talk about how, I don't know if they feel like it's funneling up to, uh, and it's somebody who's looking at enterprise risk from that level. Um, they, they, there's a feeling that it's not it's not being funneled up to that overarching look of enterprise risk. Um, have you, what do you think about that? Do you see that? Do you see that as a challenge?
1: We, we do see that as a challenge. However, um, unfortunately, as these attacks continue to occur and occur at a rapidly increasing pace, many CEOs and boards truly understand now that Cyber risk is not just a technical issue. It is that risk that impacts the entire organization and brings with it other types of risk beyond just patient care and safety. It brings with it financial risk, legal risk, regulatory risk, reputational harm. And I think as C suite and boards become more enlightened to what truly cyber risk is, and the fact that it is now Uh, included in many enterprise risk management programs, generally, Mm -hmm. quite frankly, many of the CEOs I speak to, and I speak to hundreds per year, Mm -hmm. all rank cyber risk as their number one or number two risk issue. And they also are enlightened enough to understand that they don't look at it as a silo, as a separate risk, such as financial risk or business risk. They look at it as a risk which transcends every other risk. So cyber risk is part of financial risk. Cyber risk is part of patient quality and safety risk. Um, And I think we as a sector and we in the technology side, CIOs and CISOs, have become better at translating Mm -hmm. how digital risk impacts the entire organization and translates into financial risk and patient care and patient safety risk as well. So we've needed and we we need to do a better job on the technical side translating risk cyber risk from those technical terms to those broad risk concepts and CEOs now are asking very probative questions of the technical folks so that they can understand in layman's terms how cyber risk translates to enterprise risk
0: yeah it's it well i'm i'm glad to hear that you feel like it's it's sort of getting there um because it is really it it's one of the few exist it's like an existential risk potentially. right i mean right? we know hospitals that have gone out of business they're few and far right. between but it, it has happened if you've right. got a very thin margin this can knock you out not only the patient safety stuff but this can finish you off this is That's right. phenomenal <laughs> as you said it, it they get it that it's a top three it, it's just phenomenal like it's almost like you don't realize how dangerous it is if you look at it. And, and as an example, so the Joint Commission uh, just came out with this um, preserving patient safety after a cyber attack document that I looked at a couple of days ago. And it was astounding in terms of what was what they wanted everyone to do to be prepared for a cyber outage. And it was like, when I read it, I'm like, oh my God. It's almost like if you have a cyber outage, it's almost inconceivable to think of functioning without your software. Right.
1: And it's beyond the software, right? So uh, for better, and I would say for better, the healthcare sector, hospitals and health systems in particular, have increased our reliance on network-connected and internet-connected data and technology. It is pervasive throughout our hospitals and health systems. And there are many reasons for that. Primarily, this ubiquitous use of technology, network and internet-connected technology, improves patient outcomes and saves lives. That's job one. But with this tremendously expanded use of network and internet connected technology, we have come to learn that there is often hidden in embedded risk within all this technology. And and again, I must say that to clarify, right, the technology we're using is not the hospital's technology. We didn't build the computers. We don't Mm -hmm. write generally our own operating system code. Mm -hmm. And so we're relying upon third-party technology providers to deliver us secure technology. And unfortunately, the current state and is really, we as consumers have come to accept that all technology is delivered to us insecure by default. What do I mean by that? Well, think about when you open up, turn on that new computer, or you download that software. What's the first thing we have to do? We have to update it mm-hmm. for security and other features. And then we have to continuously update it for the lifespan of that technology for security patches. I think we can do a better job as a nation and as a technology provide, service technology industry. So the embedded risk in our use of technology is that all technology will contain technical vulnerabilities, which the bad guys, foreign bad guys, will seek to exploit to penetrate our networks. But there is a more abstract, potentially more dangerous risk with this ubiquitous that comes with this ubiquitous use of technology, network, and internet-connected technology. And that's our dependency on the availability of that technology to do our jobs, to care for patients and continue business and clinical operations. So when that technology is suddenly no longer available, such as during a ransomware attack, it creates significant disruption and delay to healthcare delivery and potential risk to patient safety hence the Joint Commission's advisory. Hey, we've got to be prepared. How do we do business without technology and in every function in every department in the hospital? How do we do business, care for patients and save lives without the technology we depend upon every day?
0: So my observation when I looked at that was, this is impossible. This is this, this, what the preparedness that they want is impossible i just don't think people are going to have the time the resources remember right hospitals operate 24 7 there's staffing shortages they don't there's no excess capacity of people sitting around so the 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 undertaking that's expected to function without electronic systems for a prolonged period of time let's say more than a day and sometimes we're talking about two weeks or whatever, a long, but
1: three to four weeks actually. Yeah.
0: The 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 instinct of most people in hospitals is to wait for the systems to come back up. It's not to continue on paper. That's like the last thing they want to touch. Yeah. What I'm saying is I'm concerned. I feel like there's concern out there that it's just so it's such a big deal to transition to a paper-based workflow that I just don't know. I don't know if the preparation is there. It's just yeah. a concerning issue.
1: Well, it is a concern. And, of course, it would take a tremendous amount of resources uh, to be devoted to that preparedness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I think I want to clarify, I believe those, uh, the document is recommendations. It's not requirements.
0: Yeah, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. definitely.
1: And uh, So it's not requirements as of yet. But I think that hospitals can leverage existing programs. Uh, for instance, to help prepare, to help understand what the risk is, and then develop plans and processes to be have the ability to continue operations for three to four weeks. Now, the reason I'm saying is that most hospitals, I think all hospitals, have emergency preparedness planning and functions. They do, in fact, test downtime procedures. That is part of the job. But generally, downtime procedures have been limited to paper charting for the electronic medical record. And now we understand that we have to have downtime procedures for all all systems involved in clinical care. So diagnostic technology, labs, pharmacy, radiation oncology, chemotherapy. We have to think about if we lose the internet or we have to shut down our network, really three simple questions I always pose to the leaders to think about this in strategic terms. If we have to shut down our network, voluntarily or involuntarily, we have to shut down our internet connection. Have every department, every leader ask these three questions. What will work? What won't work? And what's the plan? To continue to deliver safe and quality patient care. So there are functions already. There are resources devoted to emergency preparedness. And in fact, our emergency preparedness teams do a really good job at preparing for other types of hazards, Mm -hmm. such as fires and floods and hurricanes. And they have mutual aid agreements with surrounding hospitals. And what I'm proffering, suggesting here is that we leverage the work we have already done and the resources that have already been allocated for emergency preparedness. And we combine that with our cyber incident response planning and our downtime procedures. And ultimately, so that a cyber incident is considered a hazard, just like a fire a flood or hurricane that's incorporated into our emergency management planning.
0: Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. You talked about... Regional impact. Um, I assume that in your previous work, uh, doing other things, you've dealt with regional impacts of different types of of, of events, uh, and looked at that. There was a paper that came out, uh, a study that came out recently that talked about the regional impact of a cyber event on a hospital and how that affected the other hospitals in the area because yeah. they had to deal with the overflow. And it, you know, I was just thinking now if I know my local hospitals had a ransomware event and they are on paper. I'm not going, I'm going somewhere else. I'll tell you that right now. Right. I'm not (laughs) not going. So you're going to have a regional impact. You're going to have the other facilities in the area where their volumes are going to increase. Uh, You talked about mutual assistance type things that can even happen um, in it departments. That's That's been talked about, right. Where uh, the hospital that's affected can get some resources, some help from the other it departments in the area. So. Not just Any more thoughts on regional sure. impact, either yep. the overspill of patients and then this kind of mutual assistance idea?
1: Yes, absolutely. And thanks for raising that study, Anthony. Um, I know the author very well, Dr. Christian Demef. Right. In fact, I did a uh, podcast with him recently and we talked about, and unfortunately we've learned from real world examples uh, that when there is a high impact ransomware attack, on a particular organization, especially if it's a large health system, as we've seen in the past, and unfortunately are ongoing incidents currently, there is widespread shockwaves, reverberations throughout the region. Just as you said, as ambulances and patients, are diverted to surrounding facilities. So that creates extra stress on those Hospitals And if their ICUs and emergency departments are already at capacity or near capacity, it really does create significant strain on the entire healthcare in the region. It's what I call the ransomware blast radius. The the initial victim is hit and there are shockwaves throughout the region, disruptive shockwaves throughout the region. Another reason to leverage the emergency preparedness planning and systems we already have in place and mutual aid agreements so that other organizations can support the victim organization during an attack with personnel, resources, technology. And we do need, just as we plan for a hurricane or flood or tornado, to plan for a cyber attack on a regional basis. And that's why I've advocated for what I call the five R's, the five R's, regional Readiness, response, resiliency, and recovery planning, five Mm -hmm. R's. So that's absolutely a great point. And I think organizations now are starting to think regionally. And quite frankly, we have to work together with our competitors. Uh, There is no competitive advantage when it comes to defending against and responding to cyber threats, just as when during the pandemic, we all came together to mutually face and fight that disease. So as I always say, and I said, when I was dealing with terrorists and organized crime, to defend one is to defend all. I think we're, we're realizing that we have to apply that same philosophy when it comes to cyber threats and attacks.
0: Very good. So uh, it's been said that It's a good idea for, uh, I guess, the the CIO, whoever's heading up security in a health system, whether it's the CIO or a CISO, uh, to have pre-established a relationship with the FBI. That's going to be your key entity if you've got some sort of ransomware issue. Um, I guess you don't want to be Googling the phone number of the local FBI when that happens because you might not be able to be Googling anything. Um, What's your advice there about what uh, the folks that lead security in hospitals should do beforehand so they're sort of prepared to take the proper steps and they've maybe laid some groundwork and actually have a name of someone to reach out to. What are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, Anthony, absolutely correct
0: that as
1: as organizations develop their cyber incident response plans, they should have a trusted contact identified with their 24-7 contact information, not only in the FBI, but also in the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, CISA.
0: Mm-hmm. CISA
1: can actually, they're really more on the preventative side. So what we would say is left of boom, right?
0: <laughs> they, yeah,
1: but They, you know, they can help organizations prepare with tabletop exercises, tools available to scan their networks for free in the FBI. Again, that personal trusted contact should, should be established and, The legal department, the general counsels have to be involved in that so that they understand that what the position and authority of the organization is the CISO to contact the FBI during an attack. All too often, for example, I see extended delay in discussion when a victim organization is struck with a cyber attack or ransomware attack uh, about whether we should call the FBI Suddenly, counsel, internal counsel, external counsel become concerned. If we talk to the FBI or CISA, they're going to call OCR, the Office of Civil Rights, and we're going to be exposed to legal and regulatory risk, not understanding you actually have protections for cyber threat information sharing with the government. I'm not a lawyer. Let me just say that. But Mm -hmm. there is a statute I'll point general counsels and outside councils too. It's called the Cybersecurity Sharing Act of 2015. And that discussion should be had, whether to talk to the government and how how transparent we should be with the government, that should be had prior to any incident and be resolved prior to being suffering an incident. Just think about it. If your house is on fire and it's raging, you don't want to have a discussion with the lawyer. Should we call 911 now or not? What are the mm-hmm. risks of calling 911 versus the rewards? That has to be baked in so there's no hesitancy to contact the government. And ultimately, it's going to become the law. So probably within a year, the not for the FBI, but to report incidents to CISA. Uh, it's actually a law that's already been passed. It mm-hmm. will be implemented 2024, 2025.
0: So you're not a lawyer, but are you saying that you would discourage any hesitancy of transparency, that you would be concerned that that might not be the best road to go down?
1: I would. And, yeah. and here I'll, I'll speak from the, again, not from the legal aspect, but, but again, I point to the statute for councils. I encourage councils to take a look at that. In fact, we at the HA recorded a podcast with one of the lead attorneys at department of justice. That was one of the primary architects of that statute talking about the protections afforded victims of cyber attacks, private entities, the protections afforded private uh, sector in sharing cyber threat information with the government. So lots of civil and regulatory protections there. So I encourage folks to look at that statute. Um, But yes, here's why transparency with the government under the protections of the statute and under protection of even legal privilege through outside counsel is because the FBI and CISA and other government agencies may be in a position to help you identify the malware strain, to provide their experience in investigating this malware strain and pointing to where and how The malware penetrated your organization and what they've seen may be the best routes to recover and help mitigate the attack. Plus, there is an inherent national interest in understanding who attacked the organization, what the impact is, regional impact right to safety, and then understanding and identifying the malware signatures of that ransomware, for instance. And warning the nation, developing an alert to warn the nation without attribution to the victim. So ultimately, it's in the victim's best interest to provide confidential, protected, transparent uh, information to the government, cooperation with the government. And it's in the national interest of the victim to cooperate, to help prevent other attacks.
0: It's also probably in your own interest in terms of your reputation. Because you know we we've read stories about well there's sometimes they don't know they're in the network right so it comes out that they were kicking around the bad guys were kicking around the network for three months well that ne- never makes anybody feel very comfortable about right. the organization uh, but any if you were to, if the public finds out after the fact that that uh, not everything was done as quickly and transparently as possible. That's not good for the reputation. It's always better to say this is what happened, and immediately we did the A, B, and C. Not we sat around for two weeks and did nothing, right? So it yeah. seems like it, it hits all the notes, all the right notes. Transparency.
1: I think it does. Again, those are this, you know, and it. But it's a little bit more complex than that. I think most organizations, when they identify that they've been penetrated, and some mm-hmm. <laughs> they act, and sometimes they have no choice because their networks are shut down. Right. So there's no there's no hiding the fact that hey. We're diverting ambulances, and we're canceling right. surgeries, and, uh, and so forth. So, um, you know, each organization has to understand that, you know, that that transparency, my personal opinion, goes a long way in continuing the trust of the community during the attack and post attack. I do cite, for instance, um, the University of Vermont Medical Center ransomware attack in 2020. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. just did a podcast with Dr. Leffler, the CEO at the time, President and CEO of UVM. When they were attacked, there was a massive regional disruption to particular service for care delivery for particular services they offered for the rest of the state. They're the only level one trauma center in the state. The most of the smaller hospitals in the state depended on UVM for a variety of services. Dr. Leffler had the courage and the leadership to be upfront and say we were attacked by foreign bad guys. Mm-hmm. And here's the disruption, and here's what we're doing to work with the communities, to work with our hospitals. In fact, it was so bad in Vermont that the governor, because of this attack, declared a state of emergency and sent National Guard cyber troops to assist UVM in the recovery. Now, UVM is not the litigious West Coast, right? So they, mm-hmm. they, for them, that strategy worked. Others, right. uh, in other more litigious areas, transparency, May bring about other problems.
0: So your background with the FBI um, is very interesting. Uh, sometimes, sometimes these things are going to be clearly a crime when there's a, a breach. You know, they're all I guess, a crime. It's all a crime. No, true, true. But there, there are breaches and compliance breaches and insider things where somebody acts, you know, not everything's nefarious, right? That's what they say. So, okay. the so say, you're, right? yeah,
1: to clarify, right. A right. Of compromise of PHI. That's not an actual yeah. criminal act.
0: Right. Like somebody did it by accident. Oh, or, yeah. Or, okay. you know, not a crime, I yeah. guess. I, I don't know if it's a crime if somebody looks in a celebrity's record. Right. OK. It, that's a little different than than a cyber attack from a nation yeah. state. My point being, sometimes it's obviously a legal issue. Sometimes it's yeah. Not quite as clear if it's an insider issue. So that's one point that a lot of the CISOs, to my surprise, a lot of the CISOs I speak to really are not interested in any kind of punitive approach. Uh, even for sort of repeat offenses of somebody clicking on, you know, the phishing campaigns they do internally to test, and you got the same person that keeps clicking on the bad link. Right. Trying to tell them. Mm-hmm. So, but then nobody wants to be punitive. Nobody wants to fire anybody. It's healthcare. Everybody wants to be happy. You're a you're a law guy. You're you're a crime guy. So what are your thoughts around that? How yeah. many, how many, how many right. uh, strikes do you get?
1: Right, right. So let me unpack that a little. Yeah. bit. So first of all, we're not talking about compliance issues. So in terms of, so that's very, very rare that we have insider threats. So let me just clarify that. When you look at the reports to OCR, the vast majority ninety ninety five percent of the reported breaches, compromise of healthcare records, are due to external hacks. So bad guys. So we want to reassure the public hospital staff are not, uh, there's no large-scale snooping of personal health information going on. And if that happens, that's a wholly separate issue. That's a compliance issue, maybe a crime in certain areas if that's done intentionally. Um, but in terms of the other issue you mentioned is uh how punitive should we be on folks who just are uh not paying attention mm-hmm. that are repeatedly clicking on phishing emails and tests. So the the organizations I've spoken to have adopted specific policies that do provide progressively punitive measures for these, I'll say, repeat in quotes, offenders, mm-hmm. right? That that click. So ranging from almost automatically, all of them, uh, I think all organizations I've spoken to automatically for somebody who fails these phishing tests uh, are automatically uh, sent for remedial cybersecurity training. Mm-hmm. So that's the first step. Some Then some organizations... Uh, and begin to notify supervisors. They may actually limit access, and then ultimately they may remove access for somebody who they believe is just um, incorrigible in a
0: sense. <laughs> That's a good word. So, I like that.
1: And um, and that you no. Know, and look. And ultimately, if employee if an employee was extremely negligent and gave up their credentials, that resulted in a high impact ransomware attack. Mm -hmm. that threaten patient safety, I think organizations take a a different look at that and may result in termination. So organizations are, but I also say don't just have sanctions, have rewards program too. Let's encourage folks, let's be positive. So if you have a employee that is really outstanding, boy, they catch every phishing test uh, and you have an employee who actually defended and deflected against a real attack. Let's mm-hmm. recognize them. Right. Let's reward them in some way. It doesn't have to be a large reward, but have the CEO say, boy, great job by employee really saved the organization and protected patients. And uh, so there has to be balance sanctions and rewards.
0: Very good. All right. Uh, two more questions. And i am spent one, one, a fun one, and then okay. sort of a final thought. Now, my fun one is now you've got like, you look at your LinkedIn profile, you've like, a pretty cool career you have a career and you've done work that it's like in TV shows right the theme of a TV show not many people do work where you know what they do for a living is in a TV show so that's pretty cool now the question is i assume you are uh by background and initial interest a law enforcement crime fighting guy right and so at some point this guy got into computers or technology or mm-hmm. cyber somehow you wound up here so, I mean, obviously, you're still, it's still a crime, a lot of, although not all of it, right? Well, not all of it's crime, cybersecurity and risk in hospitals. Some of it, again, is that insider stuff we talked about. So, the question is tell me a little bit about your fun, cool evolution of your career and then sort of the transition of when you got pulled into technology.
1: Well, good question, Anthony. I get that uh, asked a lot of time because my background is more f- focused on, as you said, uh, more proactive type. Violent crime. So I start off my career in New York City in 1990, in the bad old days when nah. drugs were a priority. Drug trafficking was a scourge of the planet, and international organized crime, and including Russian organized crime, in New York City on 9/11. Uh, working then subsequently working counterterrorism, which led me to focus on more on nation state type threats and counterintelligence. And then ultimately into cyber. What I didn't realize is all that other experience on international organized crime, counterterrorism, counterintelligence was actually directly relevant to cyber risk, cyber threats, because ultimately it was the same bad guys who had evolved from more physical means to cyber means, to technology means. So they had evolved. And what my role there was in cyber division is to kind of be that uh, private sector liaison and lead the national program and also understand and look at risk from that big strategic perspective. So as cyber became the latest leading cutting edge threat, that's where I gravitated towards as I did in my entire career. I always wanted to work the priority, uh, whatever the priority busiest threat, most significant threat we were facing. That's where I wanted to be. And, um, just last caveat, it's not always like TV. They don't show a lot of paperwork. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we don't solve crimes. We didn't solve crimes in one hour. And you know, we had these glamorous, surrounded by glamorous people. It was a lot, a lot of paperwork. A lot of paperwork. A lot of paperwork, a lot of office work. But, you know, some days it was better than TV.
0: That's awesome. So you're, you're probably uh, sort of like me in a sense, you understand technology at a high level. I mean, there are guys that are, that are doing cyber for the FBI that are really de- technical. De- yeah. That's not coders, you. Right.
1: That's not me. Nope. Yeah. That's yeah. not me. But I'm you mistaken. need
0: those guys, right? Absolutely.
1: The- <laughs> need those guys from the technical and tactical, uh, all the way up to what I do is I look at it from the strategic risk perspective and then help organizations translate that technical tactical risk into uh, strategic risk for the enterprise.
0: All right. Final question, John. I had a lot of fun with this interview. Final question is your best uh, thought piece of advice for, you know, you talk about the AHA 5,000 hospitals. uh, It goes from small to huge. So, you know, giving one piece of advice for all of them doesn't really make sense, but do the best you can uh, in terms of the people that are heading up security at the hospitals, what's your best piece of advice? What do you want them to know maybe about what the AHA is doing and and what you can do for them or resources or things you're lobbying on? Just your best piece of parting advice.
1: Sure. So first of all, I would encourage the leadership of all hospitals and health systems to really look at cyber risk as not just an IT issue, to really understand it and demand that it be translated to them in such a way that they understand the enterprise nature of the risk, to understand that it is a risk to all functions and primarily a risk to patient care and patient safety. Cybersecurity means patient safety, ultimately. And the best tool, the best service, the best way to approach cybersecurity, what is the most effective way to do that? And I say it starts with leadership. Ultimately, mm-hmm. it's up to the leadership to recognize the nature of the threat and to take action and resource the organization to be able to defend against it and be able to respond to it when they are attacked. When they are attacked. And um, again, I think it starts there. And what the AHA is doing, we are uh, very vocal, as I am. I'm not a shy guy. Uh, and I back to my government colleagues and I talk to them about the impact. And we're fighting hard for hospitals and health systems to have the necessary support from the government, help the government understand that we're not the perpetrators here, we're the victims. Mm -hmm. And ultimately it's the patients that we care for, the victims and the entire community we serve are at risk and are the victims when we are attacked. So let me stop there, but there is hope. There is hope. Everyone is coming together. So I am encouraged for the future.
0: Great stuff, John. I I could talk to you for another hour. I would love to sit at a bar with you and talk to you for an hour because uh, I read a lot of true crime, and I'm sure you have a lot of good stories. But we'll have to leave that for another time. So thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thanks, Anthony. Great to be here, and thanks for your interest in doing
0: this. (laughs)